Join me, if you would, in John chapter 1 this morning. In this passage of Scripture, and we're going to be reading down through verse 14, in this passage of Scripture, we truly have a wonderful resume of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have some things about Him that are declared through everywhere else in Scripture. Now, I'm not good at resumes. If I had to write a resume about my pastorate, fired twice, doesn't go over very well. (laughs) When the Lord saved me, I was fired. When I was in Klamath Falls at a religious organization, they fired me because I wouldn't listen to them. But the Lord has a resume here that is honorable. In the book of John, chapter 1, we have some wonderful things said about our Savior. And as we approach this time of year, I thought it would be fitting, because in verse 14 of that chapter, it says this, And the Word was made flesh. I can't wrap myself around it, but by the grace of God, I get to believe it. When we read this, we're going to read this section of Scripture, but I'd like us to first turn to a passage in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Keep your finger right there and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And it gives us a very important way of looking at the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13 Which things also we speak. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So we want to look at this passage of Scripture in the book of John, just like we look at all of the passages of Scripture. We want to go there and look at it from what the Spirit would have us to understand, and not men's wisdom. Men's wisdom will lead us astray, but the Holy Spirit will always lead us to the truth. To be taught of God is gracious, gracious of God, to teach people about God. So let us go back there to the book of John, chapter 1, and we read here in the very beginning, much like what we read in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this is what is carried in the original language. This is what is carried when God, the Holy Spirit, gave it to John to write down. This is how he intended it to be written, that people would look at this passage of Scripture, and they would see that there is the Word, or the Logos, that is brought out here, And this is where it begins, is in the beginning. Now this word beginning never has the idea of a time that God started. This word has an intention that from the very beginning, there's been this continuous action by Almighty God through every age. It's hard for us to measure eternity. I have a favorite term for it, though, when I found out the old fathers called it old eternity. That's way back there, and we can't measure it. It's eternal. And we have an 
incapacity of measuring eternal things. We can't get our hands around it because we're so limited, we're so finite, and he is so infinite. This, uh, this, this um, resume that we have listed here is in the beginning, and it says was. Now that word is mentioned three times in that verse of scripture. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now it's interesting that this has some very significant, important significance when we look at this verse of scripture and when we have some idea what the Bible has to say about the word, about God, and about eternity. That this word, it shares with us that it's, uh, uh, let me find it here, was comes to us from a Greek word meaning continuous existence, no idea of origin, Greek, God, or the Logos. This means that there has been continuous activity by God forever. It's not a starting point. It is a continuous activity by God. So we have a God that was. Now in verse uh, continuous, in verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Now the Holy Spirit wants us to grasp again, lay hold of the fact that this one that is being written about is eternal, that he didn't have a start in Bethlehem. He didn't have a start when he became incarnate. He had a start in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from the very beginning, and we use that word without being able to understand it. He's always had continuous activity. Never time that he wasn't. How else can we put it? Only as John did, in the beginning was the Word. Not the beginning of God, because there has been no beginning. Not the beginning of time, but the very essence of continuality. Now that's how long God has had an interest in his people. That's how long he has had names written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's how long he has been a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's how long there has been an eternal covenant of grace. That's how long he has had an interest in doing what is necessary for his people. It's been a continuous activity of God forever that he has had an interest in saving a people. Before he ever created, he had an interest in saving a people from their sins. Before they ever was sin in this world, he had a sacrifice prepared for sinners. Now, I just that is just too big for me to get a hold of. But that's the truth of the matter. He has had an interest in saving his people from the very beginning. It goes on to tell us in verse 3, some qualifications of this one that came. The word, the logos, the one that has been with the Father from beginning, who was God. Continuous activity as God. Never been a time when there was not God. 
We count it as eons. <laughs> Immeasurable. Now notice there in verse 3, all things were made by Him. This Logos, this Word. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now that includes everything we can see, as far as we can see and beyond. It includes the earth and all of the systems of this earth. It includes all of the kingdoms of this earth. The mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, the star kingdom, the humankind. He has created all things. As it says there, he's made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing. And you know what? This is going to go a step further and say that beyond the physical, nothing has ever been made spiritual without God. He is the first cause of all spiritual activity. He's the first cause of all physical activity. He's the first cause of time. He's the first cause of eons. He's the first cause of all things that have ever happened. And when it comes to the spiritual realm, he is the first cause. And if we don't have a salvation that is based upon him having the first cause in it, we don't have God's salvation. We have a human salvation. Verse 4, in him was life. In him was life. This is such a statement about his qualifications, about his resume that he's sharing with us. He shared this with the world as it's been pro proclaimed throughout all ages. This same message was proclaimed to our brother Abel and to his brother Cain. This is the message that was brought to them, that there is a Savior in Jesus Christ. What does it say in the book of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15? And I cannot help but think that those boys' parents repeated this message to them continuously. The seed of the woman. We read by the very name that was given to that first son that was born, Cain, that that uh, Eve had some consideration that this is the one that is going to take care of the problem that we're now in. Well, she was about 4,000 years too early on that, but what a thought it was that she had. She knew that someone that came in the flesh must take care of the problem. And that very word was carried to the children. And you know what? Abel understood that. That everything that is made is made of God. And he is life. His whole spiritual existence was based upon the life that was imparted to him, given to him in the new birth. And the life was the light of men. Now this is physical. Our life is based upon Almighty God and His giving of physical life. How those two seeds could come together and bring life is beyond all consideration and imagination, but it happens just as God ordained it. And when it comes to spiritual life, God has a purpose in bringing the gospel and the Holy Spirit together in an individual 
and the results of that is the new birth. And he has it, he's done it on purpose. He will continue to do it on purpose. And when the last one he purposes to save is saved, this whole world will be wrapped up like a garment. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And verse 5, and the light shineth in darkness. Boy, when we just think about that, the light. This time of year, it's pretty easy to get up before there's daylight. <laughs> and where we live. Now, I look on, the, on my phone down where my brother lives in southern Oregon, and they got more daylight than I do. Just because of the way the sun is. But up here, and next Wednesday is the shortest day, and so next Thursday, the days start to get longer. And I say hallelujah. hallelujah. But right now, it doesn't take much to get up before daylight and to see that first light come out of the east. And you know what happens to the darkness? It runs. The darkness runs away from the light. And isn't that the truth about it when it comes to a spiritual explanation of why people, when the light is brought, does not run to it? The darkness flees. And you know, the same thing is true. The darkness cannot overpower the light. As much as men wish they could overpower the light and say, I have more power than God does in my salvation. Once God saves us from our sins, we realize, I'm thankful I didn't. I would have resisted him all my life. I would have never had this on my, my choice. But God had a choice before the foundation of the world, and he has purposed that his light will shine upon each one of his individuals and dispel the darkness that is in their heart and give them the light, and that light is life. And that is eternal life that he gives. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. It can't enjoy it, cannot appreciate it, cannot think about it in a positive manner, but it also cannot overcome it, cannot dispel it, cannot shove it aside. I've used a term with a friend of mine several times. God's never lost a battle, and he's not going to start today. He's won every battle, every one that's been born into this world under the natural consequences of sin that Adam brought upon the human race. Everyone is opposed to God by nature. Everyone is opposed to his word by nature. And everyone is opposed by his power by nature. But by the grace of God, he overcomes our will and saves us by his grace. And when he does that, the people rejoice knowing full well that they would not, I would not have ever bowed, except he caused me to bow before him in grace. That was brought out in the Bible class this morning about people standing before God and shaking their fist. Not long ago, I had an 82-year-old man that I know pretty well come to me, and because of some circumstances with friends that have happened to him, some friends the circumstances in their lives, he said, when I stand before God, I'm going to, I'm going to tell God, I says, you will not say a word. 
Because the Bible says, you will bow, and every mouth shall be shut. And you know what? That's the truth. In salvation, we shut our mouth against all of the ideas that we ever had on how we would save ourselves, and we acknowledge that God saves His people according to His will and purpose. And when people stand before God in that day, without Christ and without hope and without God in the world, they will also shut up and bow before Him as Lord and as Master. All right. Now, here in verse 6, we have a man by the name of John. We heard about him this morning. He's a pretty important guy in the New Testament. He's been identified in the Old Testament several times. The forerunner. Now this forerunner is like any gospel preacher. Number one, he's a man. There was a man. Gospel preachers are men. They have failures. Don't trust them. But trust the one they preach about. There was a man sent from God. Now that's who John had his commission from. That's the greatest and highest commission that could ever be given. That John was sent from God. He was a man sent from God. He was commissioned by God. That makes it so important when we read through the Old Testament and Jesus said, I sent you prophets and you stoned them. You killed my prophets that I sent to you. I sent you gospel preachers and you stoned them to death and burned them and cut them up and all sorts of indignities you caused it. But it was my men, my preachers. And you know what happened to this man? That God commissioned to come and be the forerunner of the Logos come in the flesh? He was murdered by a king for preaching the truth. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now he came for a witness, to bear witness of the light. When given the opportunity, like most preachers have, he never took the glory on himself because he understood where salvation come from. He never had a part in it. He declared the gospel. He declared this one from the beginning who was the Logos, who was the Word, that was with God and was God from the beginning. He declared him. And he declared that his salvation is full and free and that there is no part of us that is involved in it. And he preached this and he preached this because he could not preach about himself. The only thing he could say about himself and the only thing that he could bring to the, book, to the table was, as you and I do, the only thing that we have that we contribute is our sin. And we have nothing else to contribute. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now what did he preach? He preached just like we hope to preach that everybody that we ever preach to could be Jacob's. Now they identified themselves soon that they weren't. He is out there on the Jordan River baptizing. He says, you 
generation of vipers. They identified themselves, at least at that moment. They didn't show any signs of being Jacob's. They were still Esau's. And by the way, the Lord does not save Esau's. Trade them into Jacob, turn them into Jacob's, just like he doesn't take goats and save them and turn them into sheep. He saves sheep. That was a figure of speech, forgive me. He said he bore witness of the light. This was the true light. Now there are other many L capital or small L I G H T's. A lot of other little lights. They're candles. They are not eternal light. We have a candle lit. Our life is like a candle. It's lit when we're born. It is extinguished when we die. Our flesh is going to be buried. Our soul is eternal. So he said here, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now there is this sense that God's light, life, comes to everybody, but there is also a sense that this light, special light, only comes to his elect. And it tells us here, as it goes on, he came unto his own, and this is what happened. You would think, with the qualifications, with the resume that this one has, that everybody would bow before him and say, I want to be in his crowd. But it tells us immediately that he came unto his own. Now, a lot of discussion about that, but I'm inclined to believe he's talking about the Jews right there. He came unto the nation that he was born into. He was of the tribe of Judah, and he dealt with people from the tribe of Levi and all the other tribes, and they, he came to them and preached to them the gospel, just as we heard about this morning, and nobody wanted to have him. In fact... They all said, we'll not have this man rule over us. Now the only ones that came are the ones that were called. And his call is so powerful that I like to use the term, it's irresistible. He will not be thwarted in this. He will save all his people from their sins. And then he goes on to say here, but as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Don't stop there. It's a, it's a colon right there. Don't stop. We have to go on to the next verse. This friend of mine that I've been work, or visiting with for now two years, he wants to stop right there and place it all upon our belief. Well, we don't have belief. It's impossible for us to believe. We cannot believe all about God. By nature, we have to be given. It's a gift to believe like it is. And it's based on this, which were born not of blood, not by ancestry, nor by the will of the flesh. I really would like to have all my children saved. And if I work hard enough, I can get them there. Ah, no, 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 no. And then it says up, nor by the will of man, not by your own will, but of God. Where does our new birth come from? God. He's the giver of all life. There is no life outside of that. Now notice verse 14. This is where we were headed. Verse 14. And the Word. 
the Word. You know, as we think about this, God had a purpose. It's written about throughout the Old Testament. It's written about in the New Testament. God, but God had a purpose that He was going to save some people from their sins. This is an eternal purpose. And in verse 14, we find out how God intends to do that. This one that came must come in the flesh. He must have flesh and blood. We read about him in the book of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where it says that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of our sin, put sin away for us, was made flesh. Now the Lord appeared many times in the Old Testament, but he did not appear in the flesh. I, I wish I was going to call Mike how, what word it is that is used. It's not used in the Bible, but it's illustrated. The Lord had appeared many times in the, in the Old Covenant, but not taking on flesh. How did he do that? He appeared in a spiritual form to Adam. Theophany. Theophany. There we go. Thank you. He appeared unto Adam in the cool of the eve. He'd done that several times. And when he came down that last time, and Adam had sinned and hid himself in the garden with his wife and covered with fig leaves, the same one came down that day and said, Adam, where art thou? Now that's not for God to find out where he was. That's for Adam to find out where he was. And he was in a bad state. He was in a darkened state. He was in a fallen state. He was in a terrible state. He was in an angry state. He was in a state that he was satisfied with his own fig leaves. And God was required to come down and take care of the problem by covering him with skins of animals. A picture of the robe of righteousness. God appeared to Enoch. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. He appeared to Noah. Here's the instructions for the ark. And I'm really upset with the way things are. You know what? God had purposed that ark before the foundation of the world. It's not surprising to God what he found. He had found here that it must be a picture, a type, and a shadow of the Savior. And you must be in the ark. And how did they get in? They went in and he closed the door upon them. How did all the critters get there? He called them. If he could call giraffes out of Africa to come to an ark, he can certainly call you from your pews to himself. He appeared to Abraham. My goodness, there were some angels that went on towards Sodom. And Abraham is appealing to this one. The Lord that appeared unto him says, If there are thirty... If there are 25, if there's 20, if there's five, would you spare the city? Well, God knew exactly how many were going to come out of that city. Four came out. One really didn't come out. Even though she was outside the walls, her heart was not out. And she's turned to a pillar of salt. God appeared unto Jacob. You know, I never find any place in the scriptures that Esau ever rested. But I find in scriptures, Jacob rested upon a rock. And God appeared unto him. I read about Moses. God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. He appeared to Moses several times during his ministry. He appeared to Joshua. 
Are you for us or are you against us? Are the words of Joshua when he saw the captain of the Lord's army. He appeared unto Gideon. He appeared unto Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that burning, fiery furnace. Other people looked down there and says, didn't you throw in three? There are four in that furnace. But they never appeared like he appeared in his incarnation. In some way, God appeared to them in a form, but it was not in the flesh. Here we read about the Word was made flesh. What was the purpose of that? In all of those other times that he appeared in the Old Testament, in all of those appearances that he ever mentioned in the Old Testament, he never had a redemptive work in mind to be completed at that time. He only had a redemptive work to be completed in the proper time. Now Daniel knew about that time, and some of the prophets knew about that time, but the time of redemption was prescribed by Almighty God to take place in a particular time, in a particular place, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, there would be a crucifixion. This one must have flesh. Now this one that took upon himself flesh did not take upon himself sinful flesh. That's why we must have a virgin birth. We must have a birth that is so different than anybody else. We must have someone who had a father that's in heaven. And we must have someone who is a woman just as God told Eve, the seed of the woman. And God united himself. Now, they didn't, he didn't become 50-50 in a miraculous way. God became man, and his name is Emmanuel. He had the ability of thirsting and hungering and being weary, and at the same time, walk on water and calm the seas. He had the ability of going into a graveyard and visiting with a man that had been confined there because of his disease of sin. And then he's sitting and clothed and in his right mind because the all-powerful God communed to him the new birth. We have the God-man, this one who came in the flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is an absolutely essential part of God's redemptive work because God in himself could not die for people's sins and man left alone could not die for his sins. So in the covenant of grace, the Father had chosen a people to save and the Son became the Savior of the people, and the Holy Spirit said, I will go find them and bring the gospel to their hearing and give them the new birth. All of them had their part to play in our redemption. And the Son of God came down here. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. 
This is more than just a little baby that's going to stay a little baby in a, in a uh, manger. Now, Lord willing, next week we'd like to say a few words about Luke chapter 2 because it's a wonderful account of the birth of the Lord Jesus. For unto you is a Savior born. All right, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. You know these book of he, uh, Numbers. The book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is filled with sacrifices. And even in Joshua's time and in the times of Solomon, just read a little bit about the dedication of that temple and the amount of sacrifice is just mind-boggling. And yet all of those sacrifices did not take away one sin from God's people. They were a type and a shadow and a picture. But that was it. The blood of bulls and goats cannot, will not ever take away sin. But the blood of Jesus Christ can pay for all the sins of all his people and present them spotless. Notice this here in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Wherefore then he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. Now what is that body going to be used for? Well, we find out for 33 and a half years that body was what carried God in the flesh around. He saw what we are. And we saw what he could do with what we are. We saw, we see him often healing sick. But he would go into a crowd of hundreds, maybe thousands, and speak to one person and heal one person out of the whole host. Other times they brought people to him and he healed them as they touched the hem of his garment. We find that as he walked upon this earth, he was among us, just as we are among ourselves here. He was a man. He is God. And he walked among us. But when the proper time came, nothing could hold him back from Jerusalem. Nothing could hold him back from going to the cross on the behalf of his people. That's why he had a body. That body was going to be used to suffer immense punishment by God the Father upon his only begotten Son. And that is how God was going to take care of sin. He could be just and justifier at the same time. He would not put sin away. He would not just put it under the rug. He'd not just put it aside. It must be paid for. And that's what he did with this body. Jesus Christ went to the cross. Jesus Christ laid down his life a ransom for many. Our sin was placed upon him. 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah explains so much about that. The 22nd Psalm explains so much about that. And then we read in the accounts in the Gospels how this all took place. And Jesus said right up front, No man takes my life from me, 
but I lay it down of myself. That's what he said. No man took it from him. When he was being prepared for the cross, he put all of the hosts that came after him with all those swords and staves, they put them on the ground in front of him, groveling in the dirt until he released them and they took him off. He is tried. You know, I don't care whether it was a just trial or an unjust trial. That's not the issue. The issue is, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Crucify him. We have a lamb. The spotless lamb of God who had no sin of any kind in him, but he had going to have sin put on him. This body that thou hast prepared for me, he came in the flesh. The flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten Son of God. We observed it, glorious Son of God. And on the cross, he demonstrated the reason he took upon himself flesh. Turn back with me in the book of Hebrews, if you would, for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And if we read this whole chapter, we find out who the men are, who the people are. Don't take it. Read on. Don't stop there. Well, I remember a a little poem that someone wrote it talks about Jesus being in the temple at age 12 now when I was in Sunday school they uh, he was asking the doctors questions but you read the scriptures and they were asking him questions it wasn't the other way around he's not being informed of a thing he is informing at 12 years age he knew who he was The psalm says, Thou didst make me hope upon my mother's breast. What's he say? I know why I'm here. He knew why I was here in his conception. He knew why I was here before all time. He came to save his people from their sins. Someone wrote about some of the questions that were asked. What's your name? And in that little poem, On My Mother's Side, My name is Jesus, but on my father's side, they call me Emmanuel. How old are you? On my mother's side, I'm 12 years old, but on my father's side, I've just always been. Where are you from? On my mother's side, I'm from Bethlehem, but on my father's side, from New Jerusalem. So what's your plan? On mother's on my mother's side I'll be crucified. But on my father's side in 3 days I'll arise and sit at my father's side. They shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us.
God purposed it for the suffering of death. And it is in that death that all his people shall have life. Brother Mike.